0: TheOAMnetwork.com. Power to the podcast.
1: bike nerds podcast episode 38 for you the listeners of the bike nerds podcast audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service sarah have you been listening to any books this week
2: i have i have been listening to collapse how societies choose to fail or succeed written by jared diamond
1: Ooh, it feels ominous
2: It's a little ominous. He has another book I really like called Guns, Germs, and Steel, which explores climate change and population explosion and public discord, kind of how those influence the collapse of civilizations. And this collapse really focuses more on environmental damage, climate change, globalization, and unwise political choices um, and how those cause the demise of societies. So I've been in like a really good headspace listening to this really (laughs) – But it's really smart. Like he goes back to like Viking colonies and like, you know, early days on the you know, east area of the world and um I highly recommend. It's like totally dry and academic, but he does good research and good writing.
1: That's amazing. I've just been listening to stories about people fighting with laser swords. <laughs>
2: I should maybe be doing that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> to download your your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash OAM. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash OAM. Sarah, happy Thanksgiving to you.
2: Happy Thanksgiving to you, Kyle. It, this is my favorite holiday.
1: Is it really? It, yep. Little tidbit, little tip. Oh. Trivia. Sarah, Sarah's number one holiday. Do you do like a bunch of family stuff or do you have like a sef- different set of rituals?
2: Family comes to my my parents live in Memphis. Family comes here, and it's just like a lot of food. It's really like low key, a lot of wine, a lot of food. Oh, Friends coming and out. I
1: it's see. Like I super see.
2: Super relaxed.
1: Yeah, I see. I see why it's your favorite now. It's just yeah. wine, wine, really. wine and cheese.
2: Wine and cheese. Um, yes.
1: is there is there? Let me ask you this. So I feel like is there is there a family dish that your family prepares? And maybe it's unique to Thanksgiving and maybe it's not like super healthy or very good, but something that you look forward to every Thanksgiving.
2: So I don't like turkey, but my brother does like a turkey we get from a local farm and he like brines it and then like wraps it in like duck fat. Mm-hmm. And then he makes this potato gratin that's heavenly.
1: And what about you? Well, is You're
2: this... doing like a tofurkey? Uh,
1: sometimes we do. It just sort of depends if we sort of – feel motivated to do it or not um you know so it's 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 okay with me just to go and eat really great vegetables um, on a plate because there's there's yeah. going to be so many i don't oftentimes need an additional tofurkey uh but so my mom makes this thing called like broccoli cheese bake um, oh yeah just like broccoli and like Velveeta cheese and like Bisquick that all get sort of like baked.
2: oh my god I, I I'm actually not familiar with that that, like that it, sounds it, amazing it
1: gets baked as like a big casserole so it's like bready and cheesy and broccoli and buttery and it's totally totally unhealthy like there's no reason that a human being would like concoct such a dish <laughs> and eat it on a regular basis but she makes it at Thanksgiving and I'm always like I would like three spoons of that please yeah that's um, like all
2: I want actually
1: yeah it's I actually find I I like it even better as leftovers because I think I. I think the uh, the bread, the bisquick and the cheese get a better sort of like um shake. The chance Velveeta sort of like congeals <laughs> yeah. even
2: more than yeah. it's yeah. current yeah. form. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I mean it's you know, it's it's kinda gross, like if you think about it from a like an ingredient standpoint. But man is it so good just to eat on Thanksgiving Day.
2: Well, I wish you the best. Thanks. In <laughs> that endeavor. Same to you. It's crazy it's Thanksgiving.
1: I know. Ugh, God. <laughs> I don't want to think about it. I don't either. Uh, so what's what's been going on uh, with you? Have you been, have you been doing anything um,
2: fun? Yeah, I had fun. On last Saturday, I volunteered for the Urban Arts Commission, which is our local public art organization here in town, and led a bike ride down our Shelby Farms Green Line to a piece of art on our Wolf River River Greenway. So it was about a, I don't know. Total of sixteen mile ride there and back, and there was a ribbon coming, cutting for this beautiful piece of artwork that kind of hovers over part of a, um, you know, Green Line Trail kind of yeah. out east, connected to Shelby Farms Park. So that was a fun ride, and the art is really beautiful. And I had not actually really noticed it because I'm not terribly observant. So it was nice to take a breath and notice the art.
1: <laughs> yeah. So two questions. First, did you say Wolf Wiver?
2: <laughs> I said seconder? wolf. I said wolf with a woman cutting. I don't <laughs> I know what okay. I'm saying. <laughs> so, second question.
1: <laughs> um so this is the piece and I I think I saw this under construction before I left last spring. Right? And this is sort of like a like a trellis like archway that goes over the trail and you sort of ride underneath this piece. Is that is that accurate?
2: That is accurate. And it's
1: sort of like it's sort of like an artistic rendition of the river's current and so it yeah, sort of has like a, a, a river feel.
2: Yeah. It's by a Memphis artist named Colin Kidder. Yeah. And the name of the sculpture is raised river. Um, so it really, it's a, oh, it's a metal it, piece and it kind of just has a, this really great flow and movement and the way the light works over it. And, and then it's neat that it's above. So you look up as you bike underneath it's it. It's
1: literally a raised river.
2: Literally a raised river. I like that. It is accurately named.
1: Shout out to Lauren Kennedy with yes. the urban arts commission, our, our good friend, Uh, who's helping doing a lot of really great stuff for art around Memphis. And, you know, I've sort of been seeing a lot of art themed bike rides on face on Facebook lately. Um, a friend of mine just did like a mural tour through Nashville, I think. Um, Oh,
2: awesome.
1: And yeah, it seems like a really cool thing, right? Where you could take people on a big tour of all this public art. And I know, I know, especially in Memphis, murals are popping up everywhere.
2: Yeah, and I think that's a great I mean, people don't necessarily notice it when you drive past them. And even it's a different experience from walking past a mural as well, kind of biking up to a piece of art. So I like that it's becoming a thing.
1: Yeah, no, that that's really cool. I'm glad I'm glad that you did that. Uh, the weather's still good in Memphis for bike riding.
2: Oh my god, yeah. Of course. That's great. Has it, it snowed yet in Boulder? It, it
1: hasn't. It's I, I keep being told that winter is coming, but it's but it's not here yet. Um, I
2: don't think winter's coming at all.
1: In fact, it's it's. I've been like wearing short sleeve shirts um, in the afternoon. I mean, I look used, at used, you. Used, yeah, I mean, you still need a jacket and gloves in the morning. Like it's really cold in the morning time. Um, but by but by lunchtime, the sun is just out. You know, it's seventy degrees, and I'm like, where's all this like apocalyptic snow that I. Was promised. I would so. I'm not, I'm not I would hold your
2: confidence for a few more months.
1: I'm not complaining, but you know, we'll see. Little, you
2: sound a little smug.
1: <laughs> well, it's because I have. I've bought all these jackets and long sleeve shirts, <laughs> and I can't wear them. I just, I'm still wearing, you know, my Memphis attire. Uh, I'm just sort of wondering, could I have spent that money on Star Wars toys rather than clothes?
2: You know, what ifs?
1: Maybe Star Wars don't, toys. Don't and let clothes. what ifs
2: lead your life.
1: <laughs> Uh, hey, so this episode, uh, is kind of a special treat. Um, it is with one of my co workers, uh, Dr. Jennifer Boldry. We call her Doc B at the office. Solid. Um, so that's also, it's Solid part, nickname. it's part because it's a good nickname. Uh, also, because we have so many Jennifers that work there, that all of them actually have nicknames. Um, oh, we don't call we don't call any of them Jennifer. Uh, they all have sort of a separate nickname, so we can distinguish which Jennifer at People for Bikes uh, you're actually talking to. So, if you ever call People for Bikes and you just want to talk to somebody, Jennifer would be a good name to, <laughs> to drop on the phone. They might say which one, but uh, anyone, you know, yeah. It's, but Duckby is the is the director of research at People for Bikes. And she is just a, a fascinating human being who uh, is super smart and is really thinking about data collection and data research about bicycling, you know, across the country on a really big scale. Um, I get to talk to her every day, so I know how kind of amazing she actually is. What did what did you think about the conversation?
2: I found her to be amazing as an individual, but kind of the work that she does and her kind of background and social sciences and data and research is just like magic to me. Yeah. It's like math and like looking at things in such kind of a complicated and creative way that I could listen to someone talk about data all day, but I don't know if I could. Well, I, I mean and I'll have to like sleep on what they said and like <laughs> figure it out the next day. But I love the conversation.
1: That's it. I mean, she'll ask me questions sometimes we, we sit next to each other. And so, we, so if, if, if a question pops into either of our head, we're, we're immediately each other's immediate outlet for that question, right? right? I'm like, I'm, I'm reading something and I'm like, Oh, Hey, doc B, here's my question. Or she'll do the same to me. And I would say on a weekly basis, she'll ask me something. And my response is, hold on. My brain just melted. I'll, call, I'll I'll call you back tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, sometimes I just I have to like really sort of like take a step back and think about what she's actually asking, and then I realize, you know, like how super duper smart she actually is, and she's sort of you know challenging me to think about data in in different ways, and uh, it's just it's a joy to work with her. Um, I'm not just saying that because I have to sit next to her every single day. <laughs> Whatever. But if but I also would say that because I have to sit next to her every yes. single day. <laughs> so take it take that for what you will, world.
2: Yes. Well it was really great to have her on. I'm glad that you pulled your people for bike strings
1: yeah you know I I don't want to do that like too often it feels like I would just be interviewing the whole office because everybody there does such amazing work in what they do but I felt like uh, after last week's conversation with uh, Charlie where we had sort of a little discussion about data that this was like a really good follow up to that that discussion and sort of dove a little bit deeper into data and research shall we hit it let's hit it you want to retake that where I ask you
2: (laughs) No, <laughs> let, let, let's free
1: ticket. Should we hit it? Let's hit it. Um, long time no see, Jennifer. Yeah, it
2: has been a really long it's time. It's been
1: at well, least 12 hours. I oh,
2: know that's crazy. So, uh, Jennifer, the big question I think everyone has is what is it like to work with Kyle Wagon Chutes? <laughs>
0: Uh okay. The the real answer is Kyle's pretty awesome. Um it's really fun to work with him. It's always good discussion, good decision making and it's a lot of fun.
1: Jesus, it's like it's like i was hoping, I, like I was I hoping for something it.
2: more juicy, but <laughs> I I agree.
0: Also the problem is we're now interdependent. So if I dish, he could dish and
2: it's it's not a good scenario. I understand that. You you've got to stick together. I get it.
1: So full disclosure, Jennifer and I are like office mates. I mean, given that, you know, that we sort of have a pretty open floor plan regarding our office at People for Bikes, our desks are, you know, next to one another. Uh, and we're off in a little corner (laughs) that's sort of our little corner. We have three, we have three walls, um, but no door. Um, and so we're like, we're literally, Sitting next to each other every single day at work.
2: Do you agree on like office like design? Like, does Kyle have too much Star Wars toys on his desk?
0: You know, I I also love Star Wars, not nearly to the level Kyle does because I think that's a very high bar. But I do also love Star Wars, so that that's not an issue for me. And he tolerates me bringing my Saint Bernard to work, so there's that.
2: Oh my gosh! That, fantastic. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Jennifer is a dog person like through and through. <laughs>
0: well, animal really, but
2: yeah. The idea of like a Saint Bernard sitting like in your office corner makes me like really really happy.
1: <laughs> oh, mostly. <laughs> I would say it's a lot, it's a lot less like sitting and more sleeping. Um and- but Bugsy Bugsy is the Saint Bernard's name. Bugsy um it's just one of the coolest, chillest dogs in the in the entire world. I think, Sarah. What if what if you brought Edwin to work with you, Sarah? What would that be like?
2: I think it would be really stressful. <laughs> um, I have like a tiny little dog that barks at nothing, so I don't think it would be like a great work environment for anyone. What kind of dog is he? He's like a Chihuahua, Terrier, mutt. <laughs> He's my best friend, and I love him to death, and. He, he makes my life better every day, but I'm not sure if he would make my work environment better. <laughs> <laughs> we,
1: we might hear him on this episode.
2: Yeah, you may hear him <laughs> barking at like the ghost that's apparently trying to break into my house. Well, I, at
0: the same you may
1: hear Bugsy snoring as we talk. <laughs> Bugsy, Bugsy does have like a mean snore. Like it, It's sort of like a it's like a room stopper. Like, people are like, what is that noise? Oh, it's just Bugsy snoring. <laughs>
2: So, Jennifer, what do you do at People for Bikes?
0: So I'm the director of research, uh, which means that I get to read lots of cool research, I get to do lots of cool research, and essentially connect the dots between things that contribute to growth in bicycling, bicycling, and then all the great things that come out of of communities when bicycling grows, Um, economic development, health improvements, all of that sort of thing.
2: Is your background in research, or is your background in bikes? Uh, both. both. So my academic background is, my PhD is in social psychology, but
0: with an emphasis on statistics and methodology. So that's where the research side comes from. And um, while I was in graduate school, I picked up mountain biking specifically and started racing. And so I've been an avid uh, bicyclist and you know bike consumer and enthusiast for a very long time.
1: Tell me a little more about your PhD research. I'm not sure we've had this conversation, Jennifer. Like, What what specifically did you um, dive deep into?
0: Yeah, so my PhD, or my academic research, so it was part as PhD, and then I was on the faculty at Montana State University for several years afterwards. Um, So that academic work really centered on intergroup relations, how groups of different statuses see each other and interact with each other. And so that's where sort of the statistics and methodology came in because an, analyzing data from interdependent groups is sort of a tricky proposition in many ways. And mm. so my advisor in graduate school and her advisor uh, are sort of the, I guess, the disciplines leading statisticians in terms of analyzing interdependent data.
2: What makes analyzing interdependent data so difficult?
0: Most statistics assume that data points are independent of one another. So if I collect data about your attitudes politically and Kyle's attitudes politically and my attitudes politically, and I just analyze to see if it's different based on, say, where we live, the statistics assume that the data points that you're providing are different and independent from the ones I'm providing. I'm not influencing you and you're not influencing me. But when we're talking about social groups, influence is not only there but is the interesting part of that so what those statistics can do and and this is kind of the focus that I had in graduate school is that you can take a group of people you can get you know their perceptions and you can actually statistically parse out the pieces that are response, that are sort of attributable to the person the individual in the group and the pieces that are attributable to the way the individual elicits from other people and then the interaction between the two
2: Dang. (laughs) Really fun stuff. That's super cool. That's like fantastic. I my I'm so glad that there's people so smart like you out there in the world.
0: Uh I I actually don't especially given the people that I tend to run around with, I'm probably not even in the top seventy (laughs) five percent. Uh I'm lucky in that I've had some really smart people to work with and so I've learned a lot.
1: I just like to ride bikes <laughs> and I, and I want everybody else to like that as well. Uh, J- Jennifer, does any of that research translate over into sort of the bicycling world, you know, in, in the ways in which we sort of think about, um, bicycling data and research, you know, does, does any of this sort of interconnectedness play out? I mean, are you, are you sort of like reliving this research as you're sort of working day to day?
0: That's an interesting question. In a lot of ways, I am I'm more academic these days than I have been since I left academics, which has been a number of years. And that's super interesting. You know, the work that I did as an academic does apply in a lot of ways. So when we talk about, you know, changing behavior, especially, I think about a lot of the work we did in terms of persuasion techniques and that sort of thing. So I think that all of that is really crucial. Um, you know, when you talk about equity concerns and those sorts of things, I think for sure, um, you know, the work on intergroup relations and how groups of different statuses, you know, see each other as relevant. I haven't done a lot of primary work with it at this point.
1: So you mentioned, um, sort of, you, you sort of qualified that answer by saying the work that you're doing now but you know you you used to do like sort of market research and would you say that that's that's not using that that kind of methodology that you that you developed through academia
0: you know again there are applications there are applications but that work was very much kind of business related, whereas now I'm working again with other academics and in other academic contexts and contributing to a literature, as a market research person, which is what I did in between academics and the work that I do now, you know, all of that work is about partnering with companies and growing their businesses. And it's all proprietary and it doesn't really contribute to a larger body of anything. It's super interesting um, in that you learn a lot, and it can be really rewarding to work, you know, with some companies, especially companies that are contributing to good things in the world. Um, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really grow knowledge more globally.
1: So let me let me add sort of like a a broader question just about data and research because, you know, we are as individuals bombarded by statistics and data and facts. And I'm, I'm using like air quotations for all of those statements. Uh, <laughs> you know, on a daily basis, like you can't get on Twitter, you can't open Facebook, you can't read a newspaper, you can't watch the news uh, without sort of being hit with something. And, I, uh, you know, what's your, you know, what's sort of, you know, your opinion, your take on uh, the ways in which data and research uh, is so prevalent in in society today, and how 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 would you differ, or do you differ, you know, the kinds of information that you see from a persuasive point of view versus you know your sort of uh, probably more academic uh, uh, intuition. Wow,
0: oh, that's a big question. <laughs> um. So, that, I mean, there's always been, whether you're in academics or whether you're in market research or whether you're in advocacy, kind of, no matter where you are in the world of data, you know, even data scientists struggle with this. There is a difference between the data and the interpretation of the data, right? And so, you know data numbers are relatively black and white and we want the interpretation of them to be black and white as well, but it isn't, Um, you know, I could take a data set and do some data mining on it. And, you know, my cohort from graduate school, two other guys could take the same data set and generate not probably not different numbers, or at least hopefully not different numbers, but could interpret those numbers really differently. And that's where things get tricky. I mean, a strict a strict research or data perspective never assumes that you're proving anything, right? What you're doing is you're disproving the null hypothesis hopefully or not finding support for it. So the null would be that there's no effect. So something like, you know, putting in putting in protected bike lanes has no effect on bicycling behavior. It does not improve. That would kind of be the null. And the best that you can do is either find support for it or not. You're never proving anything. And it's not until you have kind of hundreds of data sources or different studies showing the same thing do you start to think, you know, there might be a causal effect there. And so, you know, I think when people see data, they want it to be black and white, they want it to be causal. And any one study or even a handful of studies isn't necessarily... So what happens with social media is that you can take one finding or one person's interpretation, and I think this happens a lot, and there's a lot of good, de- a lot of good theory out there on kind of how social networks process information, but the truth is on social media, if you say something irrespective of whether there's actual empirical support for it, if enough people say it and it gets said enough, it moves into the sort of Cognitive category of fact when maybe it really isn't. And it's, it's a pretty interesting thing that happens.
1: Yeah, I heard it described one time as saying, perceptions are real even if they're not true.
0: And that's absolutely
1: right. Right. And so, how, I mean, as a, as a, as a, I'm going to sort of classify you as a data professional or a research professional. You know, how do you, how, or maybe you, tell me, do you, do you have to come to grips with, um, is there like a professional ethical standard that you have to come to come to grips with as you're sort of presenting data in a way that you're, that you want to be persuasive versus sort of this bigger picture, you know, sort of the idea that you're, you know, the data in and itself isn't totally conclusive without, you know, thousands of man hours and thousands of uh, you know, sort of projects and hypotheses being tested about something to sort of prove causality? Is there, is there a professional standard that uh, data researchers use to sort of understand how best to sort of navigate those waters?
0: You know, I think, I, I think that, I mean, this question points exactly to the conflict that sometimes happens when you know, data people or researchers work with and or for advocacy organizations. So this is something that, you know, I struggle with a lot. having been sort of an outside consultant to a number of organizations who clearly are more looking to demonstrate an effect than examine whether an effect exists, right? Those are two really different approaches to a problem. I want to demonstrate that building bike lanes improves bicycling or, in, or grows bicycling versus I want to know whether, you know, bike infrastructure actually grows bicycling. Those are two really different approaches. And so my, I can only speak sort of for my strategy. I don't know. I'm not aware of any sort of global or bigger standards for people who are in the kind of position that I'm in, and that's a research position in an advocacy organization with a specific mission. <laughs> um the way that i walk that line is that you know for myself when i'm evaluating i try really hard i do my best to make sure that i'm evaluating other studies carefully and objectively and when i do my own work i do you know i really try to partner with others who can sort of make sure we're keeping each other on so for example Um, people for bikes does a US benchmark participation study. So how many people in the US are riding any type of bike outside for any reason? Clearly, you know, we as people for bikes have a stake in the answer. We want to see that increasing, you know, we want to be part of that growth. So what I do to keep you know, can keep myself honest is that I took that study and I outsourced it. Uh, to a company that I trust to do it really well and to follow kind of the research protocol so that it's comparable year over year over year. And I'm going to ask them to interpret it, and then I'm going to look at it. And so there's some checks and balances there to make sure that, you know, there aren't biases coming in. So I try really hard to do that. But ultimately, then what I do when I find, if I find effects or if I find a body of literature that is, broad enough to you know to convince me that there's a real effect there, then I hand it over to the marketing team. So here's where I'm lucky, because I can hand it over to the marketing team with my findings and they can do a better job of sort of packaging and disseminating those findings.
2: How has kind of the research that you focus on at People for Bikes changed throughout your time at People for Bikes? Are people asking different questions and wanting different data sets? As kind of the, you know, U.S. changes in our perce- perceptions of biking and actual bike activity.
0: You know, so I've only been on staff full time at People for Bikes for about nine months. Um, I've been doing work with the organization as an external consultant for about six years before that. I think I would love to say that you know the questions are changing because we're getting some answers, and so then we change where we're looking. But the truth is, we don't have very good data in the bike world, and we certainly don't have it at the national level. So if you think about kind of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we're not high enough up in that hierarchy to start evolving our question asking. We're really at the base. We don't, you know, we don't have good data on national participation, you know, in all kinds of biking. We have the American Community Survey that measures bike to work mode share, which is a sliver of transportation riding, which is a sliver of all bicycle riding in the country. So we're not, I mean, we don't even have national standards, so we can't really move to the next level until we do. Does that make
2: sense? Yeah, so like what's the, like, how do you get national standards? Like what's the pie in the sky, like (laughs) data look like for biking?
0: So I do have a dream, on that. <laughs> and and we're, you know I think there are lots of organizations that are working together to get there. It's going to take a while, but we're even seeing interest on the federal level in some of these standards. So I'm optimistic that we'll get there eventually. You know how we how we understand bicycling between now and then is the real question. So my dream is that someday we have actual actual behavioral data on bicycling on a national level. So when I think about that, what I think about are apps like Strava and Endemundo and Bike Citizens and Ride Reports, who are who all have apps where, that help people track their actual bicycling behavior: how many miles, how long, what kinds of rides, you know, how good were the rides, all that kind of stuff. In an ideal world, on down the road, I really think that's sort of the future of understanding how people are bicycling in this country. We're a long ways from
1: that, Um, but I think someday we'll get there. So, Jennifer, if I'm a bike advocate and I'm working in my community and I'm facing opposition from a business group or from a neighborhood group or from elected officials who have claims that I think are false, right? Like bicycling is going to hurt my business or... Uh, bicycling is going to lead to, um, more crashes on my street or bicycling is going to impact the flow of traffic. And I am trying to sort of, you know, make a case that, that either those claims aren't true or that bicycling can help s- solve some of those issues. And I begin sort of, you know, doing a quick internet search and I find Reports from other cities, right? I find a I find a case study from San Francisco that shows bicyclists are spending money in businesses more often uh, than their car driving counterparts. Or I find that bicycling has led to safety uh, safety improvements in New York City. Or you know I'm sort of I'm sort of finding bits and pieces of information relevant to a very specific city in a scenario. You know from a from a professional standpoint, how do, how do I use that information in a way that's helpful where I actually am? Because, you know, sort of, as you're sort of, you know, you're sort of suggesting that, you know, that we don't have great data sets across this country, but how do I use what, what actually is available today in a way that helps me out as an advocate? That's a
0: great question. You know, I think, where I see it fall down is that you know some of our bigger cities, like the San Francisco's and the New York's, are doing, and by bigger, I guess I mean bigger, but I also mean better resourced cities um, or places, and that tends to be the bigger cities, like the New York's and the San Francisco's. And so what, what I see happening is that if you're in a smaller place and you bring that data from those kinds of cities or research from those kinds of cities, To your local stakeholders the pushback tends to be well that's new york or that's portland or that's boulder we're not like them you know and that's where national data would be super helpful because then you could actually parse it out and say well you know if you look at towns or cities that are like us they're our size or in our region or that sort of thing we still see that effect um You know, I think we're working really hard at people to provide resources for local stakeholders, advocacy groups, and communities to better understand or make the case for investments in infrastructure. Uh, We do have a specific library that you can kind of search and, and find some good bicycling benefits. I would also make a plug for Headwaters Economics has a trail benefits library. So if you're specifically looking for... You know, very good research that's been vetted in terms of that the benefits of trails. That's a great place to go. Uh, we are also, get, we're in the next year and a half or so developing templates for measuring the benefits of bicycling. That would be health benefits, economic impact, that kind of stuff. And we're going to make all of that publicly available so that communities can do that. And so we're working really hard to build a better set of, You know, data that's more broadly applicable. In the meantime, I would say, you know, you can definitely look at the resources we currently have. And the other plug I guess I'd make is for the bicycling and walking benchmark report has some really great data in it across cities of different sizes, and they give some pretty good guidelines for how to make the case. Um, And so I think they've done a great job on that front. I'd be interested, Kyle, since you've been on the city side um, for a while until you came to people for bikes. How you did it in Memphis? <laughs>
1: uh, have you ever heard of fuzzy math? <laughs> 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 uh, you know, it's interesting. I was—I was, I was going to ask. I'll, I'll answer that question, but let me ask sort of a devil's advocate question here. Uh, you know, we've just as a nation gone through a new political cycle, uh, both locally and nationally and statewide. Uh, and a question I sort of have is that it often appears, and this is going to be true of sort of any local controversial issue that pops up, not just around bicycling, but around anything. But it appears that Maybe facts don't win the day, um, oftentimes, right? You know, should should we care about data and research, or should we just do a better job of propagating the kinds of perceptions that we actually want to see across the country? Um. So I, I'm
0: clearly biased on this, one, right? <laughs> yeah. With,
1: um, I was I, I was teeing it up for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: this is this is an opinion, and take it for what it's worth understanding that I come from the data research side and I don't have experience on the city or advocate side. You know, I work for a national advocacy organization, but I've never, if I'm honest, been an advocate and I've never worked in a city. So there's that. Um, My perspective is, and especially when you're talking at the national level, federal level, state level, I think you have to have good data. I think it's table stakes. I think you have to be able to demonstrate that you know if you want resources put into something like bicycle infrastructure that there are real benefits to be gained from that investment. I think that it's going to be virtually impossible especially as we move forward making a case for an investment without real data to support your case. That said, it's not sufficient. So I think it's a necessary condition but not a sufficient condition. If you have, even if you have the best data there are, if you don't make that emotional plea or that emotional case, I think you're still not going to get the investment. So I think you have to have really good data, but I think you also have to make it relevant. You have to bring it home. You have to tug on the heartstrings a little bit. Um, And that's why, you know, I'm fortunate because I get to do the data side and then I have our marketing team to be able to do that for us at People for Bikes. Um, I think it's harder it's harder for advocates to walk that line. Mm. Um, and if you can partner with organizations that do a good job of it locally, um, then I think you can make some real headway. But I think you have to have the data, but you also have to make it a story. You have to make it interesting. You have to get people involved in it um, and to care about it in order to really make, make progress.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Are, are there resources for cities or organizations or even – individuals who are advocates to know exactly what good data is versus bad data
0: yeah we're you know i think there haven't been and in part because there haven't hasn't been a lot of data um so it you know as people for bikes we're really trying to move that direction so we're trying to be we're building a resource library that is going to be only the good stuff you know Headwaters Economics that I mentioned before, their trail benefits library, all that stuff has been vetted. You know, so the other piece of my big dream for data and research is that, you know, we can really build a library, a searchable library of of data and research and resources that have been vetted so that local groups and advocates and communities don't have to try to take that stuff.
1: Yes, sir. I would say, you know, from the city perspective, this, Jennifer, this helps sort of answer your question from before, you know, the, the act of collecting data and, um, analyzing it and using it in effective ways is there's, there's a couple of things that sort of prevent that from happening. Number one, right. You have to collect data over time. And, I think there's an impulse to collect data and try to immediately publish results based on a, a singular data collection point, whatever that is, and and it, it doesn't really mean anything, sort of as a as a moment in time, uh, without being able to compare, you know, before and after um, in, in situations. So if you were going to go out to your to a trail today in Memphis and collect user data, right, you might find that uh, today 2,000 people are using. Uh, the, the, the the trail in Memphis and they're riding bikes. Super, right? But what does that mean? How many, how many people were using it yesterday or a year ago or two years ago? And how, do, how does that help you build a better case for what might happen in the future and how, help you plan in, in a big way? So data collection is, a, is sort of a long-term prospect, right? It's something that has to be done routinely uh, over time. And I think there's always an urge to wanna draw conclusions that aren't there it, because because you've collected some some data point, I would say the other thing too is that, you know, regarding sort of like funding, like I'm thinking about sort of the practical implications of a city person collecting data, uh, you can you can find funding to plan for projects, to design and uh, engineer those projects, and you can even find funding to construct projects. But I think it's a lot tougher. In a, it's a much bigger case to build that you would then need money to sort of evaluate long term what the impacts of those projects actually are so if you build that trail in Memphis maybe you are super successful getting millions of dollars in federal and state and private and local grants and and local you know budget money out of your city for that but then to sort of go back and say well actually we need you know ten thousand dollars fifty thousand dollars for the ongoing in the future so that we can place counters and analyze this data and sort of you know do surveys and do all this i think that's a much bigger sell both to your elected leaders who are making decisions about funding and also to the public who is going to say i'd rather you not spend that money on Counters, things that we can't use. I'd rather have another trail. Right, spend that fifty thousand dollars designing my, the next project for me. So it's 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 one of those things that I think off very 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 often gets cut out of budgets, sort of on the very first cut, um, and is not something that uh, that cities adequately prepare for, sort of in a very general sense. I mean, you know, Duckby mentioned uh, you know that some cities are doing. More and her, I think her assertion was right. It's because they're better resourced, both with staff uh, and with sort of the financial ca- capabilities of doing that.
0: And the flip side of that, and this is what is so difficult about that situation, is that you know we're not getting the resources to do the evaluation piece, especially over the long term. Which, and you're spot on, Kyle, that that's crucial. It has to be over the long term because there is a gap between when you build something and when you see the impact of it. Um, And so we're not getting resources for that. And as a result, we don't have the data we need to make the case the next time we want to build. And that's where it gets tricky because it's crucial that we do that. Um, You know, and the funding of that is a difficult challenge. And so one of the things that we're trying to do with our measurement templates is have sort of a really basic, if you don't have a lot of resources and you don't have a lot of you know, in-house skill or partnerships where you can get this stuff done, you know, here is the very basic thing you can do to evaluate. And it's not expensive and, you know, it's really accessible for everyone. The other thing I would say is that I think partnerships with academic institutions are really underutilized. I think universities across the country have graduate students, masters and PhD students who are interested in alternative transportation and in place building. And they want to do their master's thesis and their doctoral dissertations on this sort of thing. They want to build a career on this sort of thing. And they can get federal funding to do work in your community. So I think that's one, you know, looking for those kinds of partnerships where there are organizations that want to, can, and can get resources to do it uh, is something that every community can look to because there are universities across the country that are doing this kind of work.
1: Sarah, if I can make a plug, and then have maybe you pontificate for a moment, but you know where we do see really robust data in the bicycling world and bicycle advocacy actually happening today is within bike share, um, and you know bike share is bike share is growing throughout the country, you know from large systems to super small systems, but it, what we're actually finding is that bike share operators. Are collecting actually a much more robust set of data than even even the cities are, are doing. You know, cities are sort of looking to their bike share operators to help them supplement the data points that they actually have. And I think it's because, you know, number one, the bike share is a, is a new technology, and and they have the capabilities of building data collection points into, you know, the very fabric of of what they're doing from the start. But also because bike share is about you know, capturing new market shares for bikes. And it's, uh, it's, it's sort of, it's positioned a little bit differently. They're trying to gain users. And so they have this, they have to sort of know what, you know, sort of what their market is and how to sort of advertise and sort of um, facilitate. Do you, do you see any of that within, within sort of the launch of bike share, Sarah? Yeah,
2: no, I think that's a great point. Also, you know, to your point, you know, Bike share is successful in cities when people ride bike share bikes. So data is really important from like a sales and revenue and operations piece. And the data is really cool and valuable and can, you know, help cities and other organizations plan. But I also think from an operations level, you know, that data is terribly valuable um, to make sure that a system maintains sustainability. Um, And I'm really interested kind of as we have all this data, how the industry looks at it in a different way, because with the national, you know, bike share association, you know, there's a resource of all of the bike share, you know, operators who are, you know, sharing data and playing with it in different ways. Um, then I am really interested in the future how, like, the softer stuff, like equity, or how bike share data connects with property values and other sort of data points within a city, kind of how those work together and, and tell tell different stories. Um, And I know even when I look at fund development for the bike share program that we're launching in Memphis, I'm really curious about, you know, making sure that in our budget, we have money to either partner with a university or, you know, make sure that we're looking at the metrics outside of the spreadsheet that the bike share system will spit out every day. Um, But really, how do we look at it in a thoughtful um, and academic way?
0: And I would just put in the plug additionally to that, that, you know, the things that you're characterizing as softer, like equity, don't necessarily have to be. I mean, as Bike Share starts to incorporate GPS uh, technology, it becomes becomes easier and more accurate, you know, to be able to look at where people are using it and how they're using it, you know, not just from station to station. Yeah, absolutely. us. It gets it gets even more interesting,
2: and I think you can challenge people also to think about equity in different ways. That it's not maybe you know it's not just race and race and income, but it's age, it's you know where you're located within your city, it's your access to X, Y, Z, um, and and then I do think it can become you know not as soft when you can attach kind of true attributes to how you're defining equity on on different scales. Exactly.
1: If I can make uh, sort of a recommendation to anyone that's listening about, you know, as an advocate or somebody working in a city that's that's looking to, you know, start collecting data, uh, start organizing, you know, sort of data collection points within their city, whether that's through volunteer manual, manually counting the number of people bicycling or that's door-to-door surveying. You know, I think uh, – I I sort of gone through this exercise in Memphis and I think what a really helpful thing to do is something called a bicycle account a c c o u n t and you can look to the city of Copenhagen in Denmark probably one of the world's best known bicycle account where if you want to sort of like see like the you know the gold standard for data collection and analysis I think Copenhagen is doing a, is is doing a pretty good job uh, but US cities I think in us advocates should be doing something that's very similar to that. And I know the league of American bicyclists has promoted uh, this kind of development. Uh, and they have a guidebook for how to sort of how to do a bicycle account, but I found it really helpful for me at the city of Memphis as a, as a, an exercise that helped me really organize and benchmark the progress that we were actually making. Um, it's a way to sort of put onto the table what data you do have. um, And begin to sort of say, well, here's where we're at today in this single year. And it can be an exercise that you do every year where you look at bicycle use and and where do you have the data for bicycle use and who's using it. And sort of just simply presenting that data can be really helpful. And it helps you also plan for the next year or the next two years. And you say, wow, you know, I have really great bicycle count data for three, three of my five biggest trails in the city um, maybe the next couple of years, I'd like to expand that data set. And I'd like to build upon that. I like, I like, I like to hit all five trails and I'd like to have two collection points on the, on all of those trails. And so that the next year you're, you begin to sort of build a data set in a very incremental way. But I think oftentimes communities don't take time to sort of reflect on what data they do have. Um, and they sort of, you know, sort of languish in this world of, Collecting data here and there, not really piecing any of it together. But if you, if you want to, you know, sort of an example of how, you know, when when I was at the city of Memphis, we began doing that. You can look up Memphis's state of bicycling report. Uh, we did them every two years as a way to allow us to pontificate a bit more in the reports about what the data actually meant. It gave us more data points to work from. But you'll see, if, if you take, if any of the listeners to go back and take a look at the very first ones that we did back in, you know, 2011 or 2012, you'll find that there's not a lot of conclusions in there. It's sort of simply a statement like, here's data, right? and as as it moves on to you know sort of like the twenty fourteen report, you begin to sort of see us presenting data with a with a few more ideas about what the trends, what's influencing them. And in the most recent one, the twenty sixteen uh, report, the one I did right before I left, uh, you'll find that that data sort of is being built over time. So I think it's it's data is not something that we should try to solve overnight. It's something that we should incrementally do and incrementally work to improve. Uh, on a daily basis, and, and there's a lot of really great examples of bicycle accounts, and I think it's just, you know, c- communities could benefit from starting uh, a data collection program, even if it's meager and meek, uh, you know, from the start.
0: Yeah, and I love that approach, because, you know, it, it really emphasizes that you don't have to You know, on the, on the crawl, walk, run scale, like nobody starts at the run level, right? You have to start by crawling and, you know, exactly take an inventory of what you do have or what you can put together, even if it's only, you know, manual counts a couple times a year on key points. Start somewhere, just start and then, you know, track the progress and hopefully you can make progress each year or each data collection. You can make it a little bit better and a little bit more robust and you know, eventually everyone will get to the run stage. Right. But, but don't not start just because you can't start at run.
1: Jennifer, I have a question. What is, and this is within the context of what you can talk about. What's the, what's the thing that you're most excited about? What's the coolest new, most innovative, most cutting edge, you know, research that you're either watching or developing. What's, what's the, What's the next big thing for bike data that, that that sort of, like, gets you up in the morning and, you know, gives, gives you the giggles over lunch?
0: Yeah, you know, I'm really excited about the geospatial data. Um, that, you know, the geospatial data, and you can talk about the apps, and we talked a little bit about this already, like the Stravas and the Rigorforce and some of that stuff. You know, that's exciting. There are bigger data sets. I mean, the cell phone data is being collected continuously all the time. There's a lot of data out there on how people get around and what they're, you know, what they're doing and how they're doing it. I think that's the biggest opportunity for understanding bicycling behavior. And I'm really excited about the possibility that, you know, there might be a day in which we could have a national database that no matter how that data is collected, cities could upload the data that they do have. And we can start to understand where bicycling is happening, how it's happening. We'll know a little bit less about who, um, except that, you know, we can maybe start connecting some of those spatial behaviors to the demographics in those areas. You know, we can really start to understand how people are using bicycles and, you know, there there will always be a little bit of a bias in that data, um, but every data set has some biases, and I think, you know, that has the best opportunity in the long term for understanding how people are writing.
2: I'm going to, you know, switch gears a little bit, which is still a phrase that Pyle and I say we're never going to say, but we do. Shifting um, gears. Shifting gears. <laughs> um And, yeah, Jennifer, I I think the the cell phone and kind of geospatial stuff is, like, really kind of, like, crazy and exciting. Um, But, anyway, you are the first podcast guest we've ever had that says that they don't have brief hobbies because they overcommit. Can you speak more on that?
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) I just – I tend to be really dedicated to the things I do. And so I don't don't really visit things and then drop them. So, you know, I – I, it's not enough for me to ride bikes. I have to ride all kinds of bikes and I have to race my mountain bike. You know, it's not enough for me to love the Denver Broncos. I have to have season tickets even if I live in a
2: different state.
0: <laughs> you know, it's that sort of thing. It's, I, I'm just a little bit of an obsessive.
2: I really appreciate that. And I do think you're the first person that was like, you know what? That's actually not my game. And I really appreciate that. Because I'm someone who has a long list of fallen hobbies, so I don't have a problem with overcommitment.
1: <laughs> uh, D- Jennifer is definitely a Denver Broncos fan through and through, um, as I'm finding that many people in Colorado actually are.
0: Well, I mean, what you have to understand about the Broncos is that in Colorado, uh, you know, pro football was pretty much the only game in town up until kind of the mid-90s maybe, Um. I mean, we had pro basketball, but the Nuggets have been so bad for so long that it doesn't almost doesn't count. So, you know, that was really kind of the only game. So anybody who lived in Colorado and wanted to watch pro sports and feel like it was the hometown team, you know, the Broncos were it.
1: You know, an interesting thing that I've found common among all of the professional sports teams here in Colorado, and Sarah, in Memphis, the Memphis Grizzlies, the basketball team, Right. Their sort of mantra is the grit and grind, right? That, that coming to Memphis, uh, you won't get an easy win because mem- the Memphis team knows how to sort of play a really tough game and really make you work for every point that you actually get. That's the grit and grind, right? But in Colorado, every single professional sports team hypes the elevation of, of Colorado, right? It, I was at a Colorado Rapids game recently, the soccer game, and there's this whole like pregame intro about how tough it is to come play soccer against the Colorado Rapids because you're going to pass out because there's no air in the in in, the, in your lungs. And all how of dramatic, the, yeah. I mean, all of the like merchandise is is tagged with the, with the numbers five two eight zero, which is you know how many feet are in a mile, and the Broncos. Play in the Mile High Stadium and the Nuggets. I saw another Nuggets preview on TV the other night that also mentioned the elevation and you know how hard it was to come play. I, I just think that that's a, that's a really interesting thing that uh, that people sort of you know promote here as as an advantage to all of the Colorado professional teams.
0: Yeah, you know, and it's funny because it actually extends way beyond um, kind of just the professional sports. I mean, even in and like amateur amateur participants, and you know Colorado boasts a lot of outdoor enthusiasts you know whenever whenever people from Colorado travel somewhere else or have guests here, the topic of altitude is always you know. <laughs>
1: Not, it's not humidity, Sarah. That's that's what they would talk about in Memphis. It's, D- it's different. Yeah, It's there's no oxygen in the air here. Thank you.
2: Yeah. You know what? I'll, I'll give that to you. I'll stop complaining about it.
1: The- <laughs> no, no. I think you can <laughs> complain. We'll just have to switch a little bit. Uh, Jennifer, it's been a pleasure. Um, uh this has been a really insightful. week. We've been, last week we had a uh, Dr. Charlie Santo from the University of Memphis Planning Department uh, on as a guest and we opened up a discussion about data. Um, I went on a little, a little rant about the ACS data and its limitations. And I, I think, I think this was a really great follow up, uh, to that conversation. Uh, and so I really appreciate you taking time, uh, to talk to me outside of work hours. Um, and for tolerating me during work hours.
0: (laughs) You know, it's always a pleasure, Kyle. I appreciate you guys having me on. It's been fun.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It was great to meet you via Skype.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Maybe it will be in person sometimes. Come and
2: visit (laughs) All right. Thanks, Doc B. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye.
1: The Bike Nerds Podcast is a joint production of The Bike Nerds, Sarah, and Kyle, and the OEM Network based in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, visit the slash Nerds.
2: Want to nerd out more? Find us on the web at thebikenerdspodcast.com, on Twitter at The Bike Nerds, and on Facebook, The Bike Nerds Podcast. Drop us a note or recommend another bike nerd to have on the show by sending us an email at thebikenerdspodcast at gmail.com.